we're entering our 20th year of endless warfare for the United States. What began on 9-11 and then the bombing that began on October 7th, 2001. We have been a constant war ever since. Welcome everyone to the season three finale of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, the director of programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. We have a very special guest today lined up. William Arkin will be joining us to talk about his new book, The Generals Have No Clothes. William Arkin is an Army veteran and has been working in the field of national security for almost 50 years as an Army intelligence analyst, activist, author, journalist, academic, and consultant. He has authored or co-authored more than a dozen books, two of them, Top Secret America and Nuclear Battlefields, are national bestsellers. He is the recipient of numerous journalism awards, and his articles have appeared on the front pages of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. He has written numerous cover stories for Newsweek magazine, and he has been on NBC News countless times as analyst, as well as appearing on Meet the Press, CBS News 60 Minutes, ABC's 2020, Dateline, and in multiple long-form Frontline and History Channel programs. Arkin is currently a writer for Newsweek magazine and author of three books published in 2021, the one that we will talk about today, The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, uh, a recent novel, History in One Act, a novel of 9-11, and soon to be published, on that day, the definitive timeline of 9-11. Joining me to talk with Bill will be Scuttlebutt co-host, post-9-11 Iraq War and Army veteran and reservist, Ryan All. If you'd be so kind, we ask you to please spread the Scuttlebutt by liking, sharing, subscribing, and ringing the bell on YouTube, and please rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We also want to connect with you, and we'd love to hear what your thoughts were on this season three and what you think about uh, the potential for season four, topics that you would like to see. So please leave us a comment, or you can connect with me personally at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at Veterans Breakfast Club. Org. Thank you so much for listening and for viewing on YouTube. And we also want to extend a very special thank you to our sponsor, D&D Auto Salvage. You can look them up on dndautosalvage.com. Thank you so much for sponsoring the podcast this past season. It has been uh, an absolute honor. Uh, without further ado, here is Ryan and I's conversation with the General's Have No Clothes author, Bill Arkin. We are uh, very honored today to be joined by special guest William Arkin, the author of, well, author of many books, uh, but a more recent book, The Generals Have No Clothes, and my co-host here, post-9-11 and Army vet and Iraq war vet and reservist, Ryan All. Uh, Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. And Bill, how are you today? I'm fabulous. Thanks for having me on, Sean. Of course. Um, so we usually on the scuttlebutt do a couple different segments. The first one I wanted to start with was this idea of clandestine. Um, your book, The Generals Have No Clothes, which we're going to dive heavily into in this episode, uh, that term comes up a lot. Clandestine. We have clandestine um, troops out there. We, you know, what is what does clandestine mean to you? Well, to me, it means that the public doesn't know and that there's not an official accounting of what's going on. So we have lots of different terms and we need to be careful about the use because they mean different things. When you say covert, it actually has a specific meaning within the law. And the only agency of the United States government that, can, that in theory conducts covert operations is the Central Intelligence Agency. And that's the phrase that exists in the law from 1947 called 
and other duties as assigned. So <laughs> that's what covert operations are. Interesting, because in the nonprofit world, we know that other duties as assigned, it, it sort of mirrors yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, that's cleaning the bathrooms. Right. So, um, and clandestine is not the same as undercover. Undercover really is a law enforcement term. And so when somebody is undercover, whether they be a police officer or they're somebody with a badge, even in the military, because there are plenty of people who are credentialed within the military, that's a specific type of operation. And it's generally a counterintelligence or a law enforcement operation. It's not generally considered to be something that takes place overseas. So what fits that middle ground between covert, where the United States is not even acknowledging its existence, and under, undercover, which is really a law enforcement and, and, and a term. And that is clandestine. It means that the United States has open forces overseas. We don't make any secret about the fact that the United States has forces in Kuwait or in Qatar or in Bahrain, that it has commands and it has actual units and they have names, etc. But the United States doesn't openly admit that it has operations in countries like Pakistan or Mali, Nigeria, Chad, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Uganda, Niger, etc. And yet we're operating in all of those countries on a clandestine footing, which means that the special operators and the vast army of contractors and supporters who are behind them uh, are, are essentially operating in, in low profile, and the United States doesn't necessarily acknowledge their existence there, even though it's obvious to the local people that they are there. Mm -hmm. and, and second, they're not really accounted for in any uh, on-the-books kind of uh, budgeting or, or, or anything like that. And, and sometimes, Niger is one of the best examples. It's a country in, in, in uh, North West Africa. Mm -hmm. um, in October 2017, if you remember, uh, four US soldiers were killed in a, a, a patrol near the Mali border. And uh, at the time, uh, I think most people would say, they had no idea that the United States was engaged in combat operations in this country. And in fact, I remember very clearly that Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, who was then uh, a senior member of the Armed Services Committee said, I had no idea that the United States was even in Niger. So here you have somebody who's responsible for overseeing the Pentagon, and he had no idea that there even were US forces in Niger. And, and during much of the Obama administration and then extending up into the Trump and, and Biden administrations, when the uh, White House gave a, an annual accounting to the Congress of uh, US forces overseas, uh, uh, the status of US forces overseas, it would always say, and other classified countries. It's like, wait a minute, classified to whom? Because certainly if the United States has military forces in Burkina Faso or in Niger or Somalia or somewhere else, uh, the locals know it. Mm -hmm. yeah. The and terrorists know it. Yeah. <laughs> and yet 
the people who don't know it is the U.S. Congress and the American people. Yeah, and it really seems to go to a, a very, you know, kind of central theme of your of your book that, I, you know, that there we don't kind of know what's going on. And there is a there is a large disconnect from what the military is doing and what the civilian world is capable of. And it's a topic that we bring up a lot in the Veterans Breakfast Club and, and in some of our programming, um, that, because it, it is, it, it helps build the, that military-civilian divide. Um, we, I was actually in New Orleans at the airport, and that's when I saw, you know, this article in Newsweek, and I, I read it, and my mind was just, you know, uh, blown. I was like, wow, this is like some really cool stuff, which then led me to the book. And I immediately sent it to Sean and was like, we have to, we have to talk about this because this is a topic and a theme that comes up a lot. Um, and we're just, yeah, we're, we're really, uh, we have so many questions to ask you about, about the book. Right. And, and, um, we really wanted to kind of, you know, uh, pull out like, uh, how, how you, why you wrote the book, um, what sort of uh, topics that, you know, kind of like the layman might, might, you know, look at this and say, okay, well, what's the difference between this and this? Um, but yeah, so I'll, I'll pass it over to Sean. I think he has a couple of questions to start with. Yeah, I think it starts with the title. Um, I think that, uh, you know, looking at the, uh, the generals have no clothes, the origin of that, the emperors have no clothes. That was a term that I had heard, um, but I never really understood what that term meant. And so I figured that we could start with that. Why did you decide to, to name the book, title the book, uh, The Generals Have No Clothes? Okay, Sean, here's the secret of publishing, all right? I didn't decide that. The publishers decide that. So number one, I would have liked to have just had a book titled Perpetual War, the why and the wherefores. Um, because let's, let's just summarize for a second. We're entering our 20th year of endless warfare for the United States. What began on 9-11 and then the bombing that began on October 7th, 2001. We have been a constant war ever since. These wars have slowly expanded from Afghanistan, Pakistan, from Iraq into Syria, uh, Libya, which began after the fall of Gaddafi, uh, Yemen, when the government there also fell, uh, Somalia, which has been an ongoing conflict since the 1990s, and then into Africa and other countries in the Middle East, including Lebanon and and Jordan. Mm -hmm. So the United States is now actively involved in operations in 21 countries around the world, and probably even more if you add some Asian countries like the Philippines and um, uh, Thailand, where there are current operations going on. Mm -hmm. So I thought that there was a particular moment in time that was occurring during the Trump administration where it was all Trump all the time in the news media. And what was going on in the world was sort of ignored. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but there had, was this strange shift in opinion in which Donald Trump as president was saying, why are we in Afghanistan anymore? Why don't we get out of Syria? What's the point of our operations overseas? Which were exactly the right, questions to be asked. What the little boy said <laughs> when he noticed that the general had no clothes on, but everybody else in reverence for the general who was uh, the emperor, who was 
parading around in the streets without any clothes on, but everybody was ignoring it because he was the emperor. The little mm. boy finally said the emperor has no clothes. Well, here's Donald Trump essentially questioning uh, the very tenor of US operations overseas, whether it was achieving anything. And um, it was really liberals uh, who were defending war while conservatives were saying, why are we still fighting in the Middle East? It was a complete reversal of roles in a funny way. Yeah. And of course, as you know, uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense resigned over Trump's uh, 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 order to remove forces from Syria. And, and everybody like was, oh my God, is the Republic gonna survive because this crazy president wants us to get out of these wars. And I fought at the time as a correspondent at NBC to get more coverage of what exactly we were doing out there. And, uh, and I was just completely stymied by the fact that it was all Trump all the time in the news media. Uh, I quit NBC and I wrote a letter basically to the effect that we all suffer when we don't adequately cover what it is the United States is doing out there in our name. But more importantly, I said, I couldn't name a country in the Middle East or Africa after 20 years where, the, where you could make an argument that we were safer today than we were in 2001. So after all of this fighting, after all of this warring, after the cost in US lives, and particularly the cost in wounded soldiers as a result of uh, operations, um, you couldn't really say that any, any one of these countries was safer or more stable. And so where was the net assessment of the success of these operations? You, you don't just conduct warfare with no objective. And if the only objective w was and had become, well, let's see, let's not kill anyone. Uh, let's not kill any of our own today. Let's try not to get anybody wounded. Let's not have a helicopter accident. Let's not drive a Humvee off of the road. Uh, let's not, basically, let's have another day of operations without an industrial accident. And that became the marker of success. And, 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 and not, you know, are we eliminating Al-Qaeda, our original objective? Are we neutralizing the Taliban, our secondary objective? Are we destroying ISIS, our tertiary objective? And then, of course, comes Boko Haram in West Africa and Al-Shabaab in East Africa and other organizations which grew up during this two decades of warring. You know, were we actually eliminating any? And even in the case today where we're seeing the withdrawal of U.S. military troops from Afghanistan, I mean, the government doesn't even make a pretense of saying to the American people, we've eliminated Al-Qaeda or we've destroyed the Taliban. In fact, military and intelligence officials are openly saying five years from now the Taliban could be back in power. So you have to ask yourself, what is the objective overall of U.S. military activities in the Middle East and Africa? And how can we get out of it? How can we get out of it? And that was really why I wanted to write a book, because I wanted to right. struggle myself to answer the question of 
how we would possibly be able to extract ourselves from these perpetual wars. Do you get the sense when you speak with like post 9-11 veterans or, or veterans of, of conflicts overseas if they, that they have a sense of that, either the either the um, the perpetual war machine, as, as you've defined it, or, you know, that they're that they're not fully understanding like what the mission is? Well, you know, there, there's a very unfortunate um, kind of moral and ethical dilemma that we face today because there's nobody in America that doesn't want to honor military service and honor the veterans. And we've seen with the announcement of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, as we did earlier with the announcement of the end of Operation Iraqi Freedom in Iraq, that a lot of veterans felt um, shortchanged, that they felt cheated, that, that they had given their lives and their time and their sweat and their blood to fight in these countries. And uh, they wanted to have the United States see it to the end. And mm -hmm. that hasn't really happened and it's not going to happen. And part of the problem is that there is no end. And we, we never really had an end when it came to Iraq. Yes, eliminate Saddam Hussein and destroy the Ba'ath Party. We had an end when it came to Afghanistan, which was to drive the uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban out of the country. But the real end, meaning like eliminating terrorism or eliminating evil or eliminating WMD, you know, this just never really was achieved. And, and, and partly, it's also the American way of war. And that's what I discuss a lot in this book. And the American way of war has become to expose fewer and fewer soldiers to actually the dangers of com combat. That, that's a real objective and it's a real development within the US military. You know, we're not into uh, volunteering for human wave attacks and hand-to-hand -hand combat and even uh, troops in contact at all. Uh, the reality of the US military today is if we can do it remotely, we will do it remotely. If we can have a minimum of boots on the ground, we will have the minimum of boots on the ground. They'll be augmented not only by contractors and others, what, what, the, what the army calls fobbits, uh, those who hang out at the forward operating bases but really never go off the base. Mm -hmm. The very few who go out there and hike and sweat and, and risk their lives are very few. And they're backed up by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of intel people and operational people and logistics people who exist not only in safer countries like Kuwait and, and the Gulf countries, but for, further back in the United States. Most people would be stunned to know that virtually all of the targeting and intelligence analysis for the Middle East takes place at Fort Gordon, Georgia, that that's the hub for all of the intercepts and for all of the targeting that takes place for the operations halfway around the globe. Mm -hmm. So we have this situation today where we've developed this um, network and we've developed this model for the United States Armed Forces in which a minimum of soldiers are forward stationed. I mean, in Afghanistan, as an example, we're talking about a total of 2,500 soldiers. You'd think, why don't they just charter 10 planes and they'd all be home? 
and yet mm -hmm. it's taking months to do it because there's an infrastructure and a network that's been built up to support these 2,500 boots on the ground. And that same model is recreated in all of the countries in which we're fighting. So when you have a soldier on the ground, I understand that there's a lot of emotion associated with uh, their mission and their, and their sacrifice but I don't think they see the big picture. And I certainly don't think that we see the big picture, meaning the American people see the big picture because it's so bifurcated, not just bifurcated in terms of all the secrecy associated with, where, with the operations themselves, but the confusion as to what is the actual goal of these operations. And so that's, that's really the theme of my book that we've created this network and this American way of war that is increasingly invisible. And because it's increasingly invisible, we don't really have the ability to stop it. So it has become invisible on our behalf. I really reject the idea that they're secret because somehow they're trying to fool somebody. It, they became invisible on our behalf. We didn't want to um, continue to take the casualties that we were taking in Iraq in 2006 and seven. We didn't want to risk American lives. We didn't want to fight to the end. That wasn't the nature of this conflict and it never was. And so on our behalf, the military increasingly moved towards drones and airstrikes and remote operations and remote intelligence and remote support and contractor support. Whereas like in Vietnam, the number of contractors to soldiers was about a one-to-one -one ratio. Today, it's a 10-to-one ratio, a 10-to-one ratio. For every soldier on the ground, there are 10 contractors. So we fool ourselves because you know how many contractors have died in the global war on terror? Almost 4,000. And yet we don't honor their service. We don't call them veterans. We don't give them any benefits or any benefits to their family. How un-American is that? So here we have this network that we've created and it's invisible and we can't stop it because it's invisible. Right. And what, um, uh, two questions real quick. One, one, um, how does the perpetual war machine and what's going on right now and our in our and our uh, inclusion and, and fighting and all and all these operations in different countries, how does that differ? And I think you have a lot of personal experience here. How does that differ from you know the Cold War, the post-World War II era, where um, you know the United States was in a lot of places doing a lot of things? How does how does the current situation differ from from that? Well, the Cold War was, a, was both an ideological war and it was a specific uh, defense of Europe and, and, and the so-called free world. I served in the military from 1974 to 78 during the height of the Cold War. And I would say to you that we really felt it every day, the ideological battle between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was, it was real and palpable. And the fear that the Soviet Union could attack Berlin or attack Western Europe uh, was a real one. And uh, there were nuclear weapons, obviously, that were keeping the peace. But uh, where the rubber met the road on the ground, we've all heard expressions like the fold the gap or yeah. uh, uh, locations in Germany where, you know, we were actually defending against a potential uh, Soviet invasion. 
and 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 that ideological war extended into the entirety of our society the entirety of our society was engaged in that ideological battle uh, whether it be uh, civil defense programs from the 1950s and 60s all the way through uh, high military spending at a time of peace because we were engaged in a cold war mm -hmm. there was an outcome and the outcome was we won we won mostly economically, but the military certainly paid, played an important role in terms of its ability to hold the Soviets at bay as the Russian system collapsed and the Soviet Union disintegrated. Today, if we have an ideological battle with the terrorists, I certainly question it. And most Americans would as well. Yes, of course, we're trying to stop another 9-11. And of course, we're trying to stop major terrorist attacks from occurring. But terrorism and, and killing is, is, is pr as prominent and as prevalent in that Middle East and Africa as it has ever been. And, and I think at the same time, it, the ideological battle, which would be the ideological battle with Islam, is not something that we have the stomach to admit that we are engaged in. And so therefore, we're not engaged in it. So there is no ideological battle. There is no national uh, conviction uh, uh, behind uh, supporting these. And so again, we have this, this really strange bifurcation in American society. Uh, people support the troops, but they don't really support the war. It's been shown over and over again that they don't. I mean, a majority of Americans don't support U.S. military operations overseas, and that's been consistent now for almost a decade. And yet we do support the troops. Now, in the olden days, you know, when during the Vietnam War, and, and, and a big expression was, well, if you support the troops, then bring them home. And I still believe that that's a valid argument today. I, I, I just don't necessarily support the notion that uh, bringing home the troops you know, means we should bring them home because Joe Biden is president or because Donald Trump is president. I, I, I want to believe that this is a completely nonpartisan, uh, uh, non-ideological stance, that in fact, the United States is not achieving its goals overseas, uh, that, that we should be uh, minimizing our overseas presence as much as possible because uh, our mere presence overseas uh, is stimulating others to take up arms against us. So there's this uh, circular, circular impact, if you will, uh, yeah. that we're overseas and people see us overseas, the big foot, the big immune America, and they want to attack us as a result. So there's a combination of these factors that are going on uh, that where we're, our presence overseas and our combat overseas is not neutral. It's actually provoking and stimulating others to take up arms against us. And remember now, young men in the Middle East and Africa who are taking up arms today weren't even alive at 9-11. So this is the world that we've inherited. And looking at you two young men, I'm saying to myself, 
Sean was probably in kindergarten or so in 9-11. Uh, I was in college. <laughs> Sean's an actor, so he ages differently than the rest. Yeah, it's okay. in the genes. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you know, the truth of the matter is that for the first time in 2019, the United States Army ingested soldiers who were not born on 9-11 for the first yeah. time. Right. Yeah. So well, um, an entire you, generation has gone by. Yeah, it's crazy. And you so you mentioned like what is still going on and there's still violence in all these places. And we really wanted to ask you about your global security index. And I think Sean had a question about that. Yeah. Sean, do you want to? Yeah, I, I think that what you bring up in the book is is uh, really a great idea. Like there used to be a group of very intelligent civilians that had oversight over the over the military. Um, and I think what you bring up is a, a sort of a, a solution to the perpetual war machine, this global security index, uh, this committee would be somewhat a part of that. Uh, can you sort of help define that and walk us sure. through it a bit? Well, the, I, I basically have a three solutions that I lay out. I, I, I'm not the kind of guy that's gonna say, just eliminate this agency and everything is gonna be okay or reduce the defense budget and everything is gonna be okay. We'll just do stupid things cheaper. <laughs> so I, I, I really wanted to struggle to figure out uh, how we could have real change. And first was we need greater civilian literacy. We need, we need really civilians to better understand national security affairs. We don't teach uh, government and national security in our schools. Uh, most people don't even know how the voting system works, let alone how the military operates. Uh, you know, all during COVID, we saw reports of the National Guard doing this and the National Guard doing that. And I think if you ask most Americans, what's the difference between the Army and the National Guard, they really couldn't tell you. So we have a real gap in our society in terms of understanding the military, and we need greater civilian literacy so that people can do their jobs as citizens. Number two, I said, we've really drifted away from the very fundamental notion in our society of a civilian leadership of the military, that the military shouldn't be in charge of itself. And, and this began sort of in the Obama administration, where uh, retired generals and admirals were put into important civilian positions as national security advisor, as the director of national intelligence, and indeed as the secretary of defense, as we've seen with the last uh, secretaries of defense, Mattis and Secretary Austin today, uh, where both Republican and Democratic administrations have lazily appointed uh, retired generals and admirals to these positions when in fact we need authentic civilians, people with a civilian aesthetic, which means that they haven't grown up in the military, they haven't spent the last 35 years in the military, they actually understand the economy, they understand the civilian world, they understand civilian needs, because that's what the framers of the Constitution intended. They intended for there to be civilian control of the military. And then finally, I say we need some way to measure whether or not we're being successful out there in the world. We need some way to figure it out. We need an actual nonpartisan, fact-based, using big data and artificial intelligence to churn events that are going on around the world to answer the fundamental question, are we safer today than we were yesterday? 
-hmm. And we can do this with the economy, we can do this with health, we can do this with other markers within our society. And I think today with the computing power that we have available to us, that we could create something which I call the global security index, like a Dow Jones industrial average that moves in real time and tells us whether or not a country, a Norway, a Malawi, or a United States is safer today than it was yesterday by establishing an integer, a number that's associated with the security of that country. And then that number changes as events occur. And those events could be everything from crises at the border to economic developments, to environmental and natural disasters, to actual terrorist attacks or bombings or uh, military casualties or whatever they would be. If, if we had a global security index, I assert in this book, and we saw that it was consistently going down, people would say, why? And yet we don't have any kind of a measure to determine whether or not uh, the security of the United States and the security of these countries around the world is getting better or getting worse. Ryan, you, you brought up a really good question as we were talking uh, before uh, meeting up with Bill here. Um, I wanna ask, has the financial benefit to continue the war now exceeded the financial detriment of being at war? It's a great question. And of course, you know, I, I kind of poo-poo in my book the whole idea that we should focus on fraud, fraud, waste, and abuse, which is often what the news media does, right? Let's look at a program, the F-35 fighter jet, and just talk about, oh my God, how expensive it is, or how much money has been wasted, or whatever. And, and, and Air Force friends of mine have always reminded me, and my God, I've kicked the tires of an F-35 in the Middle East. So let me just tell you something. It's, it, do you want a cheaper airplane? I mean, if you want a cheaper airplane, they can make a cheaper airplane. <clears throat> but I don't think that's the nature of American society. And I think really the, 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 the reason why we focus so much on fraud, waste, and abuse is it's just the only entree that most people who know nothing about the military can focus on, which is that they spend too much money. Well, too much money for what? How long should the legs of the table be? Well, long enough to reach the ground. So it seems to me that we're in this situation where uh, the debate about defense spending is, is kind of elementary and even stupid because we're not really debating about what we should be doing, which then determines what we should be spending. Mm -hmm. If you look at a bomber today, a B-2 bomber or, or even a B-52 bomber with its upgraded avionics, it can do what a hundred bombers in World War II couldn't do, okay? So, in World War II, 100 bombers would go out for a mission and try to hit the target in Germany, and none of them would be successful, and 20% and of them would get shot down, and, and, and maybe 50% of them would return to their base. Well, today, our bombers go out, and they can hit over 80 targets with precision, almost guaranteed, in one mission. Mm -hmm. So... So that's what we pay for when we need to understand that that's what we pay for with an F-35 and that's what we pay for with a, B, with a B-2, et cetera. I'm not saying that we couldn't spend less. I certainly think we could. 
I'm not saying that we shouldn't have reform. I certainly think we should. But when you're talking about the question of how much money we spend and who profits from all of this, I would remind you that increasingly, as the Defense Department becomes more and more dependent upon civilian technology, on the internet, on, on information technology, et cetera. Those are the trillion dollar companies that are trillion dollar companies regardless of the, uh, of the money that we spend on defense. And even companies like Amazon, which operates the cloud for the Pentagon or, uh, or companies like Microsoft or Dell or Viasat, which, which have gigantic Pentagon contracts, they're not getting any kind of majority of their income from, uh, from military spending. Yes, there are still the defense giants, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, et cetera, and they are indeed giants. But the truth of the matter is that defense spending is, 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 is consistently going up under Democratic and Republican administrations while we don't seem to be creating greater and greater security. I want a day sometime in my lifetime where a general testifies on Capitol Hill and says, hey, you know what? We've done a pretty good job and we've gotten to a place where we actually are, have stability and we, and we can live within our means. Mm -hmm. but, I've been in this business for 45 years now, and I've never heard anyone say that. There's no incentive for anyone to say it, but more importantly, no one says it because it isn't true. Yeah, and you you know what's you you talk about the network and the lethality that the that the military has, and and what I thought uh, you make a point in your book when you talk about uh, Suleimani, and they say there wasn't a question of whether we could eliminate him, it was just a question of whether we wanted to. And that, you know, to, to reach that level of lethality and precision um, is, is amazing and, and completely unthinkable, um, you know, 30, 20, even maybe even 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, do you think that the existence of this perpetual war machine creates a mentality among civilian pop, uh, politicians or the civilian part of, of of uh, the government that um, we have it, we may as well use it. Does it subconsciously militarize our foreign policy? Well, I think it's a great question. And I would say the answer is yes, it does. I don't think that there's a person with a mustache twirling their, their, the tips saying, ah, ha, ha, let's go out and do this. But I do think that there's an automaticity. There's, a, there's an automatic nature associated with the activities that we conduct overseas, uh, that, we, that we're on a treadmill and we are having trouble getting off of that treadmill. If you send the special operators out there and you tell them to kill high value targets, and they're gonna look at a, uh, three guys on a Zoom call and they're gonna say, well, who's the highest value target amongst these three guys? Um, the actor, I'll tell you that. Uh, well, probably. <laughs> uh, then, then they're gonna go after the highest value target. Right. And, and, and so, you know, once bin Laden was killed, once Saddam Hussein was eliminated, once Baghdadi was killed, etc. It's really, you know, we, we've seen lots of cartoons in the, in the newspapers about, uh, you know, yeah, the 88th lieutenant has been killed, the 88th uh, Al-Qaeda lieutenant has been killed. 
But it's not really a joke. The truth of the matter is they do go out there looking for the highest value target. They do go out there uh, looking for the best possible leverage against terrorists. And it is come, it has come down to pretty much um, individuals, killing individuals one at a time, like as somehow we're going to kill, destroy terrorism or eliminate terrorism by killing one person at a time. Mm. But that also matches our capabilities, right? We have drones and they're up there in the air and they fire hellfire missiles or smaller missiles even these days, like Griffin and otherwise. So the truth of the matter is that those drones are not up there to destroy or eliminate anything. They're up there to kill individuals. That's the capability that we've created in the last 20 years. And so that's the activity that we undertake. I don't see that particularly changing. It'll be a really, uh, it'll be a generational shift to move out of uh, the global war on terrorism towards China and Russia. And I know that the Pentagon is struggling to do that right now. But nobody's quite willing to say, let's just leave Africa and the Middle East uh, and focus our, our, our sole attention on helping uh, the local nations to improve their own capacity to fight terrorism and to fight uh, uh, extremism. And no one's quite ready to say that yet. And so the Joint Special Operations Command, the main a special operations task forces that do the killing out there in the world uh, continues to expand. Uh, it's expanded uh, it, it threefold since since 9-11 and it has uh, a dozen units or so that support it all around uh, from the Delta Force and the Army to uh, Navy SEALs to uh, even Air Force special tactics people. So you have growth in the special operations world that continues to operate in Africa and the Middle East. And I, I just... I don't see it happening anytime in, 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 soon, and I don't see any real move on the part of the uh, uh, Biden administration to uh, really do a full uh, assessment of the U.S. global war on terror. Yes, we are withdrawing from Afghanistan, but some stupid PR person in the White House decided that we were, should do it on September 11th. And if that's not sticking your chin out in the middle of a boxing ring, baiting the other side to hit you, I don't know what is. Like, why did we have to choose September 11th? What a stupid date. Mm -hmm. So to me, like, has it merely become theater for those who live in Washington while we still have soldiers and contractors out there who are dying and being injured? I mean, I don't know the answers, but just this week we've seen uh, U.S. strikes against Iranian militias in, in Iraq and Syria, and we've seen attacks on U.S. bases in places where the United States, where most people in the United States would probably say, wait a minute, we still have bases in Syria? Mm -hmm. How did that happen? And really, that's the question, and that's the issue that I raise in my book. How did that happen? Yeah. So even if it's with this idea of even if there was the conversation of pulling back, like the withdrawal from Afghanistan, that is only, it seems to me, perpetuating the war machine like it's it's sort of pulling back the forces but that still helps us in the long run is 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 that right well i i think that the withdrawal of u.s forces at this point with like there being an artificial requirement that we have zero troops on the ground 
-hmm. when in fact the U.S. will continue to fight in Afghanistan from Uzbekistan or from the Gulf or Kuwait, where airplanes and drones originate from anyhow, is kind of a, it's a little bit of a deception for the American people. The expectation is that we've, quote, withdrawn from Afghanistan. We're done with it. We've washed our hands of the country. We don't really care any longer to influence what happens. And clearly, we do. And so I think that the American public will be confused. They'll be confused about what it is we're doing in Afghanistan. And like the withdrawal from Iraq in 2011, which was done with great fanfare, there we were back in 2014 as ISIS rampaged throughout the country in order to stop ISIS. So will we be back in Afghanistan in three years? We certainly could be, but mostly because we have not fully articulated what the purpose of being overseas is. And that is the whole point. We have to assess our activity against the end product. The activity is only worthwhile if the end product is a a restoration of peaceful relations or the elimination of terrorism. And if we're not doing that, then we need to think about a better strategy for which to do. That's well put. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I had a recent conversation with a with a pretty senior army uh, leader that I had, and he he asked, you know, are we are we even trying to win anymore? And he said, you know, these generals rotate through Afghanistan, and they go there and they do their time, and they come back and they get their book deal and they get their professor emeritus, and they just go on. And, and but nobody's held accountable for the lack of progress or the lack of security improvement in these countries, which is what we're trying to do. Um, but, uh, you know, I think my, my question for you is what, when you're talking about the American civilians, uh, the people who we're supposed to be supporting and the people that this is supposed to be all for, right, to keep them, what, what's the so what about this perpetual war machine? What, why should people care um, about, what, about what you're saying? Well, I think that there's a couple of reasons. First of all, the U.S., populace is increasingly divorced from the military. So that isn't the proper structure of American society. The military is the guardians of the United States, and it's one of the most respected, if not the most respected institutions in American society. And the American population should not be distant from our military. Our military should not be a, a legacy force that, uh, that sons and daughters of those already in the military are the majority of those who serve in the military. The military should not be just getting the majority of its recruits from the South or from Republican or conservative ranks. They should be, it should be a true representation of America. So that's not arguing by any means for a draft. We don't need a draft anymore. The Army and the Marine Corps only needs to ingest 100,000 troops a year in order to sustain its size today. That's 100,000 people out of 24 million 18 to 24-year-olds in America, right? And yet they spend billions of dollars and they're not making their own recruiting goals. So that tells you that while on the one hand, everyone says the military is the most respected institution in our society, it seems that nobody wants to serve. So we have to really ask ourselves inside ourselves as Americans, what's wrong here? And that's number one, something is wrong. Number two, 
And I hate to say it, but I think the January 6th insurrection is really a piece of this. There is a divide between what happens in Washington and what happens in the rest of the world. There just is. The truth of the matter is that the, that the United States doesn't understand Washington and Washington does not understand the United States. And that's why we saw in the 2016 elections that nobody understood that Donald Trump was going to be elected. And that's why we saw on January 6th that all of a sudden there could be all of these people attacking the Capitol and nobody really understood who they were, what they, what they believed in, et cetera, or the 30% of our population today that doesn't want to get a COVID vaccine. Why don't they want to get a COVID vaccine? It, I, we have to be finished with this tendency on our part to just make fun of those people like they're idiots or, 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 or that they're ignorant because they're Americans and we need to understand what is these strains that are happening within American society that are making people feel this way that we, so that we have this one group of Americans who are completely distant from the military and from our own national security. And we have another group of Americans who don't trust the government and who don't even want to uh, comply with uh, what makes sense for public safety. So something is wrong within American society. There's a sickness within American society. And I think that the perpetual war is a piece of it. It's just a piece. It's just a piece. I thought for a minute during COVID, for a minute in May, 2020, that, and I even heard some national security bigwigs uh, starting to say and write, this should really change the lineup of our priorities. We should move money out of national security into public health. We should really think about whether or not preparedness is a full preparedness, not just preparedness for war, but preparedness for, for pandemics, preparedness for preparedness for environmental degradation, preparedness for natural disasters. And for a moment in time, I thought, wow, this is really going to be, this is the silver lining behind COVID. This is really going to change our society. And then George Floyd's death occurred and the rioting began. And all of a sudden, national security and homeland security were like, yes, we are back on top. Mm -hmm. And indeed, here in the Biden administration, they are. They are. We, we, who in America is saying, let's triple the size of the public health service? Who in America is saying, let's actually reorder government to deal with climate change? It's like, blah, 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 but nothing is actually changing. Mm -hmm. And so we do need a change. That's what's important. And I think the military, it sucks a lot of oxygen out of the planet. Uh, it's a black hole of spending that influences the government overall, and the national security establishment is certainly the priority, the varsity establishment in Washington. If we can't change those things, we're not going to be able to change what needs to be changed in our society. You think a lot of that does go back and start with the civilian intelligent oversight? I do. Yeah. C both citizen literacy people understanding the reality of government and understanding the reality of why Washington has developed in this way, but also at the same time, true civilian control of the military. Ryan, I got one last question, but I figured I'd pop to you if you have one before. 
Um, no, I just want to say, uh, Mr. Arkin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it was very informative. I loved your book. Um, I think there are a lot of veterans out there who at some level uh, felt, feel or felt, you know, what you're talking about um, with, with what is going on. Uh, and I, I think you're, you're uh, really on point on a lot of these things. And when, I know just personally, when I read it, I was like, this guy just wrote down so many things about what I've been feeling, right? And I, I read it and it was, it was, it was great. Um, so thank you very much for being here. Uh, the book is The Generals Have No Clothes. Uh, it is available. Um, so please go and check it out. Thank you, Ryan. I would echo all of those sentiments. And from a civilian perspective, it opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, you know, it definitely educated me on a, on a lot of what is going on. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely can hear more and see more uh, of the articles that I see and understand more about the, the way that our government is doing business in this way. Um, and my last question maybe is a bit, maybe a bit of, of a humorous question, but with all of this knowledge, uh, Mr. Arkin, that you have gained over these decades, uh, how do you remain positive on a daily basis? <laughs> well, you know, I guess I'm a cynical guy. But one of the things that I decided in the early 1990s was I was done with Washington. And uh, first I moved to Vermont where I raised my kids and now I live in California. And the truth of the matter is that um, uh, I think I'm a better person for not being in Washington and I think I'm a better analyst for not being in Washington. I have a better sense of what's actually going out on, in the country. I have a better sense of people's real priorities and you can get stuck in that Washington, New York, Los Angeles, Hollywood bubble, where, where, by the way, the news media is physically stuck and where most national security is stuck. And, uh, and so when I say the country, I mean the rest of the country, because, because that, that part of the country is practically immovable, uh, especially in the national security world, where there's a revolving door that essentially means military to contractor to military to government to contractor to government to contractor is a pretty sweet career deal for most people. It's not coincidental that seven of the 15 wealthiest counties in America are in the Washington DC metropolitan area. This is where the money is. So I, I, I guess I would say I keep my optimism, or at least I keep myself motivated by virtue of thinking of myself as a citizen thinking of myself as uh, somebody who's doing their civic duty. Uh, I'm a journalist and I'm a writer and I'm very motivated to reveal the secrets of the US government because I firmly believe that the secrets of the US government have nothing to do with protecting that information from the enemy. They have to do with hiding that information from the American public. That's my motivation. It's always been my motivation. And I feel as motivated today in the Biden administration as I did in the Trump or Obama or Bush administration. I'm not a partisan critic. I'm critical, critical of them all. And I don't care whether or not the, pre the president has appointed somebody magnificent to be secretary of defense or not. They still demand our scrutiny and our criticism. And, and, and I've always, I've never pulled a punch in terms of uh, criticizing anybody who deserves to be criticized. Uh, do I see good going on? Like in many institutions, I see good happening at the middle levels, 
at, at, at the level of the worker bees and the, you know, the sergeants in the army and the, and the majors and the lieutenant colonels in the, in the army and the air force. Uh, that's, that's where people are still <laughs> motivated enough and, and, and gung-ho enough to want to uh, see success behind their own activities. But once people get to those higher levels, somehow they lose, they lose sight of it. I, I always go back to the very famous anecdote of George H.W. Bush, President Bush the first, uh, where he was asked, you know, what does a quart of milk cost? And he wasn't able to answer the question because he hadn't been to a supermarket in years. And the truth of the matter is that that's what can happen to people who are at the top. They can be completely divorced from the reality of Americans and the reality of American society. I'm motivated to make sure that they understand, even if it's embodied in just one guy, that uh, we, we citizens have rights and one of those rights is freedom of the press and I'm going to make their lives as miserable as possible because that is exactly what the American design is intended to be. Very, very well put. This has been uh, really a great hour conversation. Um, thank you so much, Mr. Arkin, for, for writing your book, uh, for coming on the podcast today and, and educating Ryan and myself and the audience here. Um, we'll definitely be looking for further books that you have coming out this year. Would you like to talk about either of those? So I have a novel that just was published called History in One Act. Uh, it's a the 9-11 story, uh, what, how, did it, how did it happen from the point of view of the terrorists? Hmm. It's a big novel and I've worked on it for over a decade. And then I have another book coming out later this fall, uh, which is called On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, which essentially goes through a lot of new information about what actually happened on 9-11 in 2001 declassified diaries from President Bush, declassified logs from the Pentagon, and shows really a much more frightening picture of US governmental control than we've ever known before. Ryan, would you like to sign us off? You go ahead. <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Ryan, and, and definitely a pleasure, Mr. Arkin. Thank you so much. Thank you again, everyone, for joining us for another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I want to thank D&D &D Metal Recycling and Auto Salvage for their generous support and sponsorship of this program. You can find their locations, get quotes, and ask about availability at dandautosalvage.com. That's dandautosalvage.com. We'll see you next week here on The Scuttlebutt.